All right, everybody. Thank you all for coming to the Unusual Whales GDP space. I am Nicholas. I'll be running the panel here today, asking questions, spitballing ideas. I'm excited, as always, to have all these speakers. As we get going, everybody on the panel, feel free to jump in at any time, add your two cents at that. So I'm going to just kind of work through the wonderful lineup we've got here to talk about GDP from a macro perspective, as always here. Starting off, we've got a regular on the Unusual Whale Space is a big friend of ours, big fans of his. We welcome back, excuse me, he's heading the trading at the Fed's open desk. He's got an incredible book called Central Banking 101, and he's the go-to guy to speak about the Fed's operations. Good morning, Joseph. How are you doing? Hey, good morning. Doing very well. Thank you very much for inviting me, Nick. And thank you very much for inviting me as well. Unusual Wells, it's a pleasure to be here. I love these spaces. Get to Always a with, pleasure to have you. Yeah, I get to speak with and listen to some of the smartest people. Around. Yourself included, obviously, Joseph. Thank you so much for being Up next, we've got Vixologist, known as Jim Carroll, back again to the Unusual Whale Spaces. He's an expert in volatility as well. He he can talk term structure of VXX for ages and a lover of guitar. Thanks for coming, Jim. Uh, Thank you, Nicholas. Thank you to the Unusual Whales crowd. Happy to be here this morning. Hope I can uh, add something to the Delighted to have you as always, Jim. Thank you. Up next, we've got Pedro da Costa. Needs no introduction at all, but we'll give him one anyway. He's the Federal Reserve Correspondent and Hit Policy for the Americas at MI Market News. Recently interviewed Rajan about how the Fed's QT could trigger a liquidity crisis. A must read and listen. What are you doing, Pedro? Very well, thanks. Thank you so much for having me. Good man. My pleasure. Up next, we've got Benjamin. He's a newcomer to the spaces, but an active member of the Twitter community. He's the CIO of 3L Capital, an active space discusser. And let's wish him an unusual whale's warm <laughs> welcome to the spaces. How are you doing, Benjamin? Hi, Nicholas. Thank you for having me on. It's a privilege. Thank- thanks for coming, man. Put here. Next, we've got Martin Pelletier. He's a portfolio manager at Trivest Wealth Council and often columnist for the Financial Post and an avid skier. Welcome back, Martin. How are you? Good morning. Bright and early from Calgary. Pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have you, man. Last but not least, we've got Bob Elliott. Bob's CIO at Unlimited Fund, former IC at Bridgewater and an all-around macro geek. He's a first-timer on our spaces, and let's give him a warm welcome. Ed, how are you doing, Bob? Nicholas, good morning. Uh, thank you for, for having me. Not just the first time here on the uh, Unusual Whales uh, space, but also the first time on a space as, as I just sort of started getting into this a couple of uh, weeks ago. So uh, really appreciate uh, everyone joining and, and hopefully I contribute a little bit. Welcome to the realm, man. I didn't know that we were, uh, we were space numero uno for you, man. Numero uno. You got it. Breaking into the new world. Let's go. Happy. All right. So I think we can just kind of get right into things. I'm going to ask a few pointed questions and then we'll open them up directly to the panel. So to start off, we're just going to kind of go over some of the GDP data and print that we're expecting to see. Many have suggested that regardless of the GDP, the Fed must 
pivot. The U.S. dollar has rallied high. The 310 curve has inverted a Fed favorite. And inflation has remained high and sticky above expectations. So I'm going to start off with Joseph here, and then I'm going to kick this out to the rest of the panel as well. Do you think the Fed will consider this GDP in the larger context? And what exactly is the Fed looking for here? Let's start with you, Joseph. I, I think you framed the question very well, because when we, listen, when we look across the world, it looks like other central banks are gradually slowing down their hiking. And I think that suggests to many market observers that maybe the Fed will do the same. But I think the Fed is a bit different situation than the other central banks, though. Um, well, first, when it just comes to this GDP data, it looks like the GDP now is projecting about 3%. And if you look at the Fed's own dot plot projections, they think of the longer term potential GDP growth as about 1.8%. So we're still growing above trend. And that really gives room, uh, gives Fed room to continue to maintain its restrictive monetary policy. Another thing I think that's really important to note is that the way that money monetary policy is transmitted through which country is different. And it depends on the structure of each country's financial system. Um, for example, if you're in the UK, a lot of households have variable mortgages. Or if you're in Canada, a lot of households have very short-term mortgages, let's say two to five years that have to be renewed. So when you're hiking policy, that feeds through to their households, to their economy. It slows their economy down a lot quicker and more effectively than it does in the US, where, for example, um, mortgages are 30 years. So differences in structure mean that other central banks don't have to hike as much to get the same effective tightening. And that's very different than it is in, in the Fed. So I think if you're expecting, uh, I think, the Fed to uh, follow other central banks and begin to slow down, I think you're a bit early. And um, I guess today's GDP that should give the Fed more cover, actually, to to continue on the path that they've already clearly set. Does anyone else on the panel have anything else to add to what Joseph said? I, I think Joseph... Go ahead. Sorry. Uh, I was just going to follow up on Joseph. I think there is a longer lag effect from rate hikes or in monetary, how monetary policy manifests through the U.S. Um, but where we're already starting to see, Joseph, is second-order effects happening in credit availability, not just the cost of credit, but its availability, how it's priced, um, who's there to sort of backstop in the area of like mortgages, for instance. And when you look at securitized lending, you're starting to see more cracks surface across collateralized lending. So if I look at auto loan um, component of the uh, Bloomberg ABS uh, index, the spreads are now well above uh, the peak level seen earlier this year. So that suggests to me that there's a problem surfacing in auto loan in the auto loan market could just be liquidity. It could be sort of more fundamental related um, based on um, feedback that we're hearing from like um, uh, Ally Financial and others. And then, of course, mortgage spreads, both nominal and option adjusted spreads remain quite wide. And um, on the recent Odd Lots for uh, podcast, uh, there was mentioned that with the Fed and banks no longer acting as a backstop to mortgage lending, there's really no large institutional player to kind of police spreads or be sort of that liquidity pricing backstop in the mortgage market. So I think already we're because of either re uh, banking regulations or because of just the um, uh, lagged effects from, from higher interest rates, we're seeing that availability of credit start to make its way through the broader economy. 
And your point is well taken. I just wanted to add that I agree with Joseph that, uh, you know, the market's been sort of trying to catch the pivot, you know, catch the wave at the perfect juncture for many, many months. And it's been wrong several times. And I do agree with Joseph that it, the market could be wrong again in the sense that the Fed has really tied itself to the mast in terms of needing to see actual inflation numbers come down before they, you know, they kind of decelerate the pace of tightening. And so there's a, a sort of issue about whether the data that we get between now and December gives them enough cover to slow and how much signaling they can do at this meeting about slowing, given the unknowns about what the data is going to come out. And to the point of th this morning's GDP discussion, I think we are in a sort of good news is bad news for the market situation where uh, the more the more of a rebound in growth that we see, the less the Fed thinks that its policies are having an effect and the more it thinks it has to do overall. I think uh, I, I really like Joseph's point about the focusing on the structural dynamics, which I think often get lost in the day-to-day -day, um, incremental pieces of information. If you think about how the structure of the U.S. economy has changed you know, since basically prior to the financial crisis to where we are today, there's been a very explicit uh, increase in resiliency, both driven by, uh, by regulatory policy, but also driven by you know, prudence among uh, a variety of market participants, which has essentially created an economy that is much less sensitive to incremental interest rate changes um, than it has been, you know, in a very long time. And so we have, uh, you know, duration has been extended. Refinancing has happened at very low rates. Um, balance sheet capital is very high amongst the, the, the core uh, financial institutions. And so, you know, you, we're seeing an, a, the structural base of the economy is a lot more uh, sort of an older school structure of the economy rather than the sort of highly leveraged economy that we saw in previous cycles. And that means by definition, we've really reduced our sensitivity to interest rate changes uh, in a really meaningful way and in a way that's pretty different, uh, as Joseph highlights, to much of the rest of the world that's really built on uh, very, very focused on highly variable rate uh, borrowing and, and interest Thank you much, guys. Really good points here. All ready to start. This is going to be an exciting one. I can feel it. So I've seen pivots spoken about by a few here. and We've seen smaller than expected increase from the Bank of Canada, actions by the Bank of Australia and Bank of Mexico, BOJ, BOE. And the last CPI print was 8.2% versus 8.1%. Notably, PCE was elevated too. This leads many investors to believe the Fed will once again raise interest rates by at least 75 BPS at the next meeting. Bank of Canada just raised by 50, which was pretty, I mean, it's a lot under the 75 that was expected by most analysts. Michael Darda of MKM Partners stated the Fed is, quote, on the cusp of going too far too fast. They should be slowing down the pace of hikes, not reacting to lagging indicators, citing CPI and rent. Bob, you posted some great charts yesterday regarding pivots, bottoms, and GDP plus inflation. Can you walk us through some of that? Sure, just have to figure out how to press the right buttons on this. 
Um, <clears throat> you know, I think, I think the main, we, most of us, uh, our, our sort of formative experiences as traders have been around the, the 2020 cycle and around the 2008 cycle, both of which were crisis driven cycles. And, um, and <clears throat> things moved fast in terms of uh, both the uh, decline of economic activity and the asset markets, as well as the reflation related to them. And given uh, the changes in the economy and given uh, the, the dynamic that we're seeing today, which is really much more sort of a classic uh, inflation driven, you know, late cycle dynamic, you know, I think what we're seeing here is a much more um, a, a much slower moving cycle and a much more macroeconomy driven cycle than basically you know any of us have have really known in our uh, in our professional careers or or certainly in our recent professional careers and so I think it's important in that context I I, I look back to uh, to the period uh, you know in the, the maybe the 2000s are the right period, maybe uh, a different period. But what you see is the linkages take a long time. It, you have a tightening of interest rates. It takes, you know, 12 months before you start to see that, 12 to 18 months before you start to see that in the employment. It takes even longer, another, you know, another 12 months plus to start to see it in the inflation, you know, in, in to get to the peak in inflation, inflation meaningfully coming down. These are very slow cycles that are playing out um, that typically play out when you have to rely, I'd say, on the macro economy linkages to slow the economy rather than financial crisis linkages to slow the economy. And so my guess is, um, you know, we we've all it's like we all are sitting here uh, becoming more and more accustomed to uh, immediate gratification in everything that we're buying, we're trying to become immediately gratified in getting our recession down and over with and then back to the other side. And all of us, I think, have to slow down a lot in terms of thinking and visualizing how this cycle is going to play out, because it's much more likely than not that uh, a year from now uh, or two years from now, we'll still be in this cycle. Um, which is pretty unusual, you know, pretty, pretty, uh, pretty new to most of us who are in, in the market. And that has a lot of implications for asset prices and, and, um, and how people should be positioned today. Thank you, Bob. Does anybody on the panel have any comments or contention to Bob's comments there before I move on? Uh, I think, uh, well, first of all, I, I think Bob makes really good points and he has done really good work on this. If you should really should check out his Twitter feed on this, um, I think one of the things that I look for when we're thinking about slowing down, like raising interest rates would be slowing credit growth. But if you look at the public data for banks, at least loans and leases and bank credit, it continues to grow very strongly, uh, significantly at a rate significantly above pre-pandemic. And that suggests to me, inconsistent with what Bob's saying, that even though we've been raising rates significantly quickly and rates are at high levels, credit growth continues to be strong. It's, it's going to take a while. And as Bob mentioned earlier, we're at a different state than we were before. Uh, balance sheets and everything are, are much stronger. So that, that all argues for this taking longer, unless, of course, something breaks and then we have the financial crisis channel. Add. I would also add that the Fed has sort of embedded this. The Fed is well aware of the policy lags and it talks about them, but it's actually 
kind of counting on them. It wants to overshoot. Fed officials have actively said that the risks from a risk management perspective, the risks of doing too little are greater than the risks of doing too much. So they kind of are erring on the side of overshooting by design rather than by accident. And, and it, I would ask, actually agree thinking that, you know, they've been a really good job of, of jawboning and, and really talking, talking it up to maximize the impact of their, of their rate hikes because it's been, you know, the fastest that we've seen. So, you know, looking at the, at the lag impact, you know, just on housing, it's really interesting that, you know, looking at the doubling in, in mortgage rates in order to, let's say, for example, you had a $2,500 a month mortgage payment, you could buy a house for 800 grand in the U S prior to the, um, to the mortgage rates going up. Now that's only going to get you a house at 488,000 for the same level of affordability. So that's just going to take some time to work its way into, uh, into the economy and into the housing market shelter costs, which are, you know, 40% of, 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 uh, of inflation numbers. So, um, yeah, there's, it's just overall going to take some time, but the fed is doing a really good job of, of, of maximizing its. Thank you much, everyone. We're going to kick back to, the general trend of the economy here in a moment. But first, I wanted to ask you, Jim, a lot of people have lamented about the lack of action from the VIX here. Can you walk us real quick through the various aspects of the volatility environment? Sure, I'll give it a shot. Um, yes, and and I've commented before and posted some charts showing that uh, hedging really has not helped people this year. Um if you look at various ways to hedge, there are a couple of SIBO indices, uh, PPUT and VXTH. Uh, one buys puts and one buys VIX calls. Uh, both of those have underperformed the naked S&P. Um, you know, what, what has worked this year has been selective shorting. Uh, managers who have been able to bring a good short book to the market have, have outperformed. Uh, the level of implied volatility, whether it's through the VIX, uh, the VIX term structure uh, remains elevated and remains very flat uh, on the VIX futures term structure, suggesting that people really aren't confident about much of anything. Um, you know, we've seen the VIX futures term structure hanging out above you know, 25 for an extended period of time, very narrow range, uh, less than two points from the front to the back. Just in the last few days, we've seen some relaxation at the front end with this rally that we've seen, um, which has been kind of interesting because uh, small caps have outperformed. You know, yesterday, other than uh, Microsoft and Google, the, the, uh, the, the major guys that have been whacked on earnings, um, there has been, you know, relatively broad strength uh, looking at small caps, looking at breadth measures across the board. Um, you know, so th this will be an interesting, um, an interesting day to see the extent to which there's a response to this data point that's coming out, obviously just one of many data points, but um, hedges are expensive. Uh, the reason that we haven't seen more reaction to various news items 
in the volatility landscape is because um, there's been a lot of exposure taken off the books uh, by large investors. Uh, hedge funds have reduced their leverage. So there's not the same exposure that we saw coming into the year. And uh, it's, it's going to take something bigger, more sustained to see any significant increase in implied volatility measures from where I sit. Hey, Jim, I have a quick question. What, explain, what in your mind explains the new low levels that we're seeing in the SKU index? Is it because there's just hardly any demand for out-of-the-money uh, protection at this point? Uh, I, I did read one report, though. It might be driven more by just uh, large demand for, for call options as opposed to put options. Well, I think, you know, there's, there's a certain amount of, of equity substitution, if you will, people uh, t taking the underlying off the books and, and adding call exposure uh, to, to get the, uh, the, the equity exposure that somebody might want. And, and there are also any number of ways to look at SKU. The SIBO SKU index is one. Uh, people in the vol space tend to, uh, to poo-poo the SKU index itself. But, um, you know, whether you're looking at the options markets, uh, whether you're looking at one of the things that I like to, to use as a, uh, a quick look is to compare the VIX index, which is a full strip of S&P options, with um, a measure called volley, which is at the money implied volatility for the same 30-day period uh, that Scott Nations created a while back. And the wider the spread between VIX and volley, the, the more skew there is in, in that options measure. And, and you know, you're right, that measure of skew has also come in. Um, I think people's observation is that um, the, the value of out-of-the-money protection these days is very small. You know, if you've got an attachment point, that, a point that's down 10, 15, 20 percent, uh, as the market slides, we're just not seeing uh, the the premium values increase uh, to the extent that people would like them to. So I think uh, buying put protection is out of favor. Uh, and as you point out, there seems to be a little bit of a bid on the call side, uh, and that has really flattened skew. Now, Joseph, given Jim's discussion of VIX and the market being not so confident of much of anything, Joseph, you said, and I quote, I think you guys are too bearish. I'd love to open this up to the panel. But first, Joseph, can you touch on that a little bit? Why are they too bearish? Yeah, well, my sense when I tweeted that, I think a week or two ago, was that everyone was waiting for the markets to imminently implode. I just... I think it's hard to see that and looks like we haven't imploded yet. I think we're too bearish for a couple of reasons. Um, one, uh, at that time, it felt that yields were at a point where we would probably see some kind of official intervention, at least somewhere in the world, to stop yields from continually to go higher. Um, one way to think of yields going higher is that the price of sovereign debt is decreasing, and that's an asset held by uh, wide ranges of investors as safe assets. So in a sense, you're continually haircutting safe assets in the financial system. Eventually, you're going to have financial stability concerns. And we saw that a little bit in the UK, and that's the same in many other countries as well. So if you have yields at a place where 
your belt topping, I think that gives risk a bit more room to breathe. Uh, the second thing I think we should keep in mind is that I think as U.S. investors, we're often too domestic focused. Um, for example, if you're a Japanese investor and you were investing in the NASDAQ or the S&P this year, you would have lost 25-30% like everyone else, but you would have made it back on your on the dollar appreciation. So in yen terms, you would have been flat. And that's how many foreign investors look from their portfolios as well. So you could have a lot of support in U.S. assets simply from foreign investors looking to benefit from dollar appreciation. Um, that's kind of why I thought we were too bearish back then. And I think we probably are still too bearish right now. These things usually take a while to play out, as Bob has mentioned earlier. Thank you, Joseph. So, Pedro, actually, let's kick this to the whole panel. And, Pedro, feel free to start here as well. Are we indeed too bearish? Uh, I'm not sure. I, I, I'm not sure that we're too bearish, actually. In that sense, I think that there are enough kind of financial market disruptions. One of the things that's been fascinating for me in the last three weeks is that the market went from thinking that the pivot might come from macroeconomic events to thinking that maybe financial stability would kick in, issues would kick in first, right? And so that transition for me uh, is very important. And I think it suggests that, uh, you know, there are enough risks out there and there's enough concern about contagion and, you know, what are what other pension fund LDI like issues are there out there in the system? So, you know, it's hard to fault the market for being for being bearish from that perspective. One of the things I think we've not experienced um, in this market cycle is uh, the idea of, of leadership rotation. And that usually coincides with capital discipline coming back to the market in the face of tightening. Um, credit in terms of tightening, uh, basically rising cost of capital. And the last time I think we saw a meaningful rotation was the internet bubble of the late 90s into, you know, the, the hard asset um, rally that roughly began in 2003. And perhaps what we're seeing today is a similar dynamic taking place where capital discipline is now being um, implemented in the market where if you're unprofitable, if you're losing cash, um, that business model of, of maximizing your your market share, your addressable user base is not going to work in this cycle. And so perhaps we're seeing, in a way, a shift in risk appetite and more capital discipline coming to market. If that's the case, then one could see um, maybe not so much a bearish outlook, but, but more sort of a uh, flat gyrating um, rotation in the market that, that could sustain market advances, but maybe not uh, like what we've seen over the last decade. So, Bob, given your comment on being premature on pivots and bottoms, is the market still too bearish? What are your thoughts here? Ah, I was just about to jump in. You know, I think um, we, in many ways, were sort of in this sweet spot moment um, of, uh, of the earnings cycle um and the economic cycle where you had tightening which is you know the the change in the discount rate has flowed through to asset prices but that tightening hasn't really affected economic activity enough to then start to create the earnings downdraft that you would typically 
see as uh, the economy weakens in response to the tightening. And so I think this is a very uh, this is a very tricky moment because um, the there will be signals and there have been signals of let's call it fine earnings outcomes, not great, but not terrible. But we're sort of waiting for the next shoe to drop. And, and, and that's like to, to sort of take it up one level, infl- growth is still above potential. Output is at high levels. Uh, inflation is too high. It might be slightly off peak, but it's still way too high. And the only way that's going to change, that combination of things is going to change is if there's uh a change in asset, you know, a change in asset prices, which leads to a change in demand, which leads to a change in the macro economy, which leads to a slowing of spending, which leads to a fall in inflation. So in some sense, like, is the market too bearish? The market's not even close to where we're going to bottom here, uh, because that's what has to happen in order to meet the Fed's mandate. And the Fed's not going to give up the mandate. So anyway, that's a, that's a bit of a, uh, a long-winded answer to say, no, the market is not too bearish at all. Hey, Nicholas, I just want to interject. The ECB came out with um, their announcement. They did raise rates by 75 basis points to benchmark 1.5%. The terminal rate is still projected to be 2%, but if there is a global coordinated uh, action on the pivot front, I think the ECB missed the memo because they not only raised rates as expected, but they're also... Uh, moving ahead with QT and tweaking the TLTRO, which has got the European banks not not quite as happy on that front. So on the ECB side, let's uh, let's dip into that a little bit. Benjamin, did the ECB have any other option than to do it this way? So they did um, discuss just the fact that inflation remains too high. And they're right. I mean, inflation, headline inflation in Europe and in the UK is higher than it is in the US. Um, so I think in some ways they were more concerned about um, policy credibility um, and, and, and also trying to address the inflation picture, knowing that there is going to be a lot of fiscal stimulus being taken by the continent to support uh, via energy subsidies to support energy consumption through the winter. So you've already had political um, pushback from Macron and from Italy about the higher rates, and um, but yet the ECB continues to feels compelled to, to continue to move ahead. I think in some ways that does signal what we can expect from the Fed that they're going to maintain their policy course as well. If if we were gonna if we were gonna get a hint that we may see a policy shift by the Fed, I think we would have at least gotten some of that from from today's ECB, and we haven't. Thank you much, Benjamin. So, Martin, I would also love to hear your thoughts on being too bearish here as well. Often on the web, it's a lot more popular to be bearish. So last one on this, Martin, are people too bearish given yields, earning data, et cetera? Uh, I take Meta, for example, as an earnings outcome, as Bob has said. Absolutely. I, I think I, I think I'm, I, I look at the odds and play this, you know, looking at markets and where money's made we've got money in the market. So we've got skin in the game and, and, you know, these are the markets where returns are made. Um, and there's a time to, to be defensive. And there's a time to be, to go on the offense. 
And, you know, and I'm not talking binary all or nothing. I mean, looking at just statistically, you know, Michael Batnick put a really good uh, stat out showing in relation to the S&P and the number of stocks in in, in relation to its 200-day moving average. We've been here 219 times and only twice out of those 219 times were returns negative 12 months out. That was 2008 and uh, and 2000, and we're talking minus 6 and minus 12%. And so, you know, are we in a 2000 or are we in a 2008 event? And I don't think that's the case, um, simply because we're raising rates to, you know, uh, to 400 basis points is, is just not going to break the system. It will break uh, companies that um, can't, can't generate cash flow, that need a low cost of capital in their business models. Absolutely. So, yes, there could be some, some carnage and, and some further you know, downside in, in those areas of the market. But for the most part, um, you know, there's some some really good bargains out there. You know, you get corporates that are five and a half that I think you can make ten percent. I call it the, the the chicken shit way of playing equities. Um, you know, with with uh, in the option market, you know, we're doing structured notes with yields of, at ten to fifteen percent with thirty percent uh, downside barrier. So. Yeah, there, there's there's opportunities out there in the energy sector. Um, uh, another area that we're overweight. You know, these companies are, are trading at two to three times cash flow, and they're going to buy back all their stock and debt within four to to five years. I've never seen that before. So, yeah, there's there's lots of of opportunities. And if you paint the market with the overall bearish brush, you're going to miss out on some of those opportunities. Thank you, Martin. So GDP comes out in about two, two and a half minutes here. So to follow up with Martin and Jim here, you recently noticed that $25 billion has flown into leveraged and inverse exchange traded funds this year, and the market has returned into a state of the casino. What assets are you looking at? Are inflows too bullish waiting for that 20% bottom rally? Let's start with Martin and then kick her over to Jim. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's with with COVID coming in and, and sports betting and the transition into the markets, I mean, there's just a lot of noise, and uh, and you're seeing tremendous volatility in those in those inverse ETFs trying to to you know time the the bottom or saying we're going to go much much worse. I mean, I wouldn't look too much into it uh, as to the the flow and what's happening there. Um, it, it's just noise in in my opinion. But uh, on on the flip side. It does paint an interesting picture as to the amount of speculative money still in the market, and and if we are, um, you know, we've had a, a pretty sizable you know a downturn here, and it hasn't flushed out that speculation. So that's something that that is a little bit surprising. Yeah, Jim, what about you regarding the leveraged ETFs? Any comment on the zero DTE activity recently, Jim? Well, uh, I I think. Uh, punters going to punt, uh, and perhaps they've moved away from the options market uh, because you know premiums have gotten more expensive. So they look at the inverse and leveraged inverse ETFs as a different way to do it. Um, I uh, w- what I've been telling clients all year is we're in an environment where. If you want to be a strategic buy and hold investor, you better strap it on. And uh, alternatively, you need to shorten your time frame, be more tactical. And in some cases, that could include the use of leveraged or inverse ETFs. Um, but, you know, 
as usual, if you see a lot of inflows into that space, it probably ends badly. So we just got GDP. It came out at 3.6, and the expected was at around 2.6. Sorry, go ahead, Ryan. So Bloomberg's I'm reporting 2.6 versus 2.4. my bad. 2.6 versus 2.4. Misread that. That is on me. So what, is, what does this mean if it means anything? Does it coming in higher than expected give us any positive projections for the time to come? Or, or at this point, does this third quarter, after two quarters of downward numbers, does this third quarter of positivity mean anything in the grand scheme of things? So the, the price index came in at 4.1%, much lower than the expected 5.3%. Um, as we get the components, uh, as expected, I think it's going to be trade that really drives this beat, just the big drop in imports. I'm waiting to see. What so as we kind of dig through here, looking at some of the GDP numbers that just came out, Joseph, do you have any initial thoughts? I think something that I'd like to follow up on, and, and Pedro made this point earlier, it seems like the Fed is almost teleport, telegraphing that it wants to over-tighten in or be very aggressive. And I think it's useful to think about why that might be. So central banks usually approach the world in a risk management framework, and the ECB does the same if you listen to their speeches. And so they have to balance the risk of what are the risks to when you if they were to over-tighten, and what are the risks there to under-tighten. And the perception is that the risks of under-tightening are actually much higher, while the I'd see the impact, the bad impact of under tightening is higher than the bad impact of over tightening. And that is because if you were to under tighten, maybe inflation expectations get out of control. Maybe we have a repeat of the 70s. And so I think the global central banking community is inclined to over tighten rather than under tighten simply because the cost of getting inflation expectations unanchored from their perspective is, is higher than than just over tightening and inducing a recession. So I think that should inform how we view this data going forward. It, it seems to be a bit softer than, um, than expected, but I'm not sure that would really change uh, the Fed's projected path of policy. So the positive contributors were decrease, a smaller than expected decrease in private inventory investment and acceleration in non-residential fixed investment and an upturn in federal government spending. Um, as expected, imports were a big uh, contributor as well, the big drawdown in imports. But we did see a large uh, decrease in residential fixed investment. No surprise with what we're seeing in the housing market and consumer spending did decelerate. Pedro, I'd love your comments here as well on Joseph's comments in this initial GDP print. Is this going to be softer than expected, as Joseph just said? I mean... To be honest, I think GDP is kind of like the least relevant indicator from a, a Fed and interest rate perspective right now, in the sense that, you know, the, the Fed is basically trying to get demand in line with supply. The, the, you know, Powell has been very clear about like how he thinks about this in very simple terms. There's been a supply shock and there's been a demand shock. Demand is outstripping supply and, uh, and they're trying to get demand back in line. And this number basically just keeps them on track to, to keep tightening policy. There's, there's nothing in here that tells you that they, that they should slow down. I mean, 
the, the slowing in consumer spending is, I guess, something that they'll welcome. Uh, but until we see the, the Fed is placing so much emphasis in the labor market and there's such a disconnect between the growth numbers and the labor market this year that until we see meaningful slowing in wage growth and, and employment growth and an actual rise in the unemployment rate, I don't think they're going to be satisfied that they're putting enough pressure on the economy. Fair. And I want to touch more on those topics a little bit as well. So many economists have stated that this quarter's projected positive GDP is largely due to the falling of imports of foods, industrial supplies, and other goods, as was just said here. Economists such as Daniel Silver at JP Morgan have said, while the trade deficit has narrowed substantially in Q3, we think that the stronger dollar will push the deficit wider over time. Ben and Bob, we'll start with Ben here and then kick over to Bob. Can you walk us through what a strong dollar does to the economy? Well, I mean, in some ways, it should help in terms of um, um, import demand because the um, uh, currencies that export to the U.S. Um, should benefit from a depreciated currency. But we're not seeing that in this case. Uh, if anything, you know, imports continue to to drop rather than rise. So um, we could see sort of some... Um, uh, price effects in happening with the strong dollar. A strong dollar helps reduce import price inflation uh, and taking, you know, a level of inflationary pressure off the Fed. I mean, we see the bond market uh, coming off uh, uh, earlier losses, partly because the, the, the price component of GDP uh, came down much lower than, than expected. And not only that, but we also saw a significant drop in the um, residential investment component, which subtracted 1.37% off the off the figure so um you know strong dollar is is probably in some ways uh benefiting at least the the economic reports that are coming through via lower imports and uh, also lower price pressures but um ultimately it's it's supposed to um um uh, help i think exporter nations as they sell into the u.s so uh, the fact that there's just a lower appetite for for imported goods, even with the stronger dollar, suggests that maybe there is that the uh, headline inflations are really a, starting to affect end demand. Yeah, I mean, my my thought, I've, I've talked a little bit about the dollar uh, and its impact on the economy. And the answer is uh, it doesn't really matter. Um, and I know that's probably a a, a boring response uh, to people who want to show charts of the dollar rising and implying as if the dollar moves are things that create disasters around the world. Um, I think most people who are doing that are either misunderstand or, or maybe are just trying to make for a good click. Like the, the reason why in past cases, the dollar has rallied at times of uh, global economic contraction is because global credit growth has contracted, demand has contracted, which you know the dollar makes up the vast majority of borrowing globally, which is so therefore the slowdown in economic conditions is the thing that both you know the slowdown of demand drives the collapse in economic conditions as well as the the rise in the dollar uh, as it's essentially, the, the slowing of borrowing is essentially like a 
like a short squeeze position in the dollar. And so what you get here, the, the dollar in a big picture sense doesn't really matter. It on the margin makes imports less expensive, but it's, tr you know, trivial, like a 10% move in the dollar is a big move in the dollar. And, you know, maybe if maybe takes, you know, a couple tenths of a basis point, a couple tenths of percent off the, off the CPI. Um, it probably, it matters. Probably the main place where it matters is in, um, no, I should also say our export economy is not particularly sensitive to the dollar because global exports are by and large priced in dollars and the things that we're exporting that matter are not particularly currency sensitive like airplanes. Um, and so really it comes down to how it affects companies. And I think that's an interesting lever. Multinational companies typically see a 50 basis point hit for every 1% move in the DXY. It is interesting that what you see so far in terms of the moves of stock prices in general is that if you take the impact of the discount rate plus the impact of the dollar so far and you net those things out of stock prices, we're still we're actually above where we were at the start of the year, you know, today, uh, when you net out those sort of more mechanical effects. And so in that sense, the dollar has an effect, but is it, it, there's no way that it's going to change or really even meaningfully impact what the Fed's going to do. It's all about the domestic services economy and the price wage price uh, loop. And that's really what's going to determine whether or not uh, the Fed continues its its current path of policy. So to keep going on this line with the U.S. dollar, Ben, you've said that the hedging wrecking ball U.S. dollar makes it cost prohibitive, even for price insensitive overseas buyers. Does a strong dollar not necessarily matter as it is just a full slowing of borrowing, as Bob said? Should people not be performing technical analysis on DXY? Partial joke there, of course. And uh, I would love to open the dollar discussion to the panel. But first, let's start here with Ben. I think I think it does matter to the extent that, that it affects uh, overseas liquidity and and overseas demand for U.S. assets, which are typically hedged back. And and it just a strong dollar just means it makes it more cost prohibitive to hedge uh, those the overseas investments in U.S. assets. Uh, and so potentially it reduces the demand. So I think it, it has more of a financial and liquidity impact than it does a, a broader economic impact. Um, it's particularly during sort of acute moments um, where, you know, in the past, the spike in the dollar had signified uh, dollar squeeze pressures. Um, but I think there's probably today there's a lot more coordination, especially among the central banks, such as freeing up dollar swap lines to like the Swiss bank um, that we've seen reported recently. And and so. I think a, a sort of dollar funding squeeze uh, is somewhat mitigated by coordinated central bank action, um, but it does make it more cost prohibitive the, the further the dollar strengthens, um, especially when it, it, the implications are is that central banks, uh, develop, at least developed market central banks, aren't keeping up with the Fed as, in terms of um, uh, staying ahead of the inflation curve. And, and maybe that's why we saw the ECB come out uh, largely as expected as opposed to Canada Australia and, and, and other central banks in, in terms of meeting those expectations on what they were going to do with Ike. So looks like the dollar is coming off. Uh, it's uh, early morning highs following the GDP release. I think the market is interpreting this release as somewhat benign 
given the fact that, as expected, much of the Q3 advance was driven by trade and, and not so much by domestic uh, pressures. In fact, if anything, housing was the biggest drag on GDP, uh, as well as a continued drawdown in, in private inventories. And so this doesn't sort of really read as, as having significant inflationary driven implications as, as, as far as domestic economy is concerned. And um, one of the area that uh, that you could be, you know, looking at and again uh, how we're managing our portfolios, we've been uh, taking advantage of the U.S. dollar strength and repatriating some of those dollars back into Canada. Um, and, and if we're buying things in the U.S., it's we're going more CAD hedged. And yet, given the example about Japan, for example, and how that has. Uh, the currency differences has, has helped their investments and mi- mitigate the downside. So for those of us outside of the U.S., uh, the U.S. dollar has been an excellent hedge. And now it's now it's time that uh, well, we're we're uh, removing uh, moving a part of that hedge nonetheless. Anyone else with comments on a strong dollar from the panel? It's a fan favorite topic on FinTwit. So uh, maybe Pedro. Yes, I think that from the Fed's perspective, the strong the Fed almost has like an unspoken strong dollar um, strong dollar policy. They they're not in control of the dollar supposedly, and they don't comment on the dollar, but they welcome the the strong dollar, and they kind of shrug their shoulders when the rest of the world complains that they're overdoing it, because you know they just say that we're domestically focused, and they welcome it because it's part of the tightening of financial conditions that they want and need to see in order to bring inflation down. So that's how I think. The Fed sees it. I think Pedro is exactly right. If you remember Chair Powell's testimony before the House and Senate, he basically stated one of the three mechanisms through which monetary policy acts is through a stronger dollar. Now, as Bob noted, now U.S. imports and exports are all priced in dollars, so it doesn't really affect us through that channel, but it has a tremendous effect on the demand in foreign countries. For example, if you're in Japan and oil was priced in dollars because your currency has gone down 40%. Suddenly, oil was a lot more expensive for you, and maybe you decreased your consumption of it. So in a sense, it indirectly helps US, uh, U.S. inflation by destroying foreign demand, uh, foreign global demand. So um, in a sense, other people have to tighten their belt so that we can have lower inflation. Let's jump on that a little bit more, Joseph. You recently said a strong U.S. dollar doesn't mean there is a dollar shortage. Fed is hiking steeply. <clears throat> Two's at 4.2%. U.S. dollars should be appreciating against other effects. It's becoming more valuable. Fed's willing to supply virtually unlimited U.S. dollar via its swap line, so U.S. dollar shortages are very unlikely. Can you explain that a little bit more, Joseph? I think people often confuse the spot dollar and dollar funding. Now, the spot dollar from what I see is often driven by interest rate differentials and geopolitical risk. When you're talking about dollar shortage, I interpret that to mean, uh, let's say you have, you want to roll over a dollar loan, you need dollar funding, but you really can't get it at any price or unless, or like crazy prices. And we see that during times of financial crises. And the best measure of that is the FX swap basis, where uh, let's say, usually you can borrow dollars at a small premium, when there's a true squeeze, you see that FX swap basis blow out significantly as it did in uh, March 2020 and in 2008. 
And that is an indication of people not being able to get financed regardless of the price they're willing to play, pay. I think of that as what a shortage is. And that's basically completely off the table now that the Fed has operating FX swap facilities constantly. So in theory, anyone who's willing to pay uh, can get money indirectly from the Fed. So if the Fed is willing to supply dollars basically infinitely to the offshore dollar world, you, you are basically never going to be in a, in a funding squeeze. Um, again, that's very different from the price of spot dollars, which could continue to appreciate as interest rate differentials widen. So are there any comments from the panel here or any final thoughts on the dollar? Nicholas, you uh, you made a joke about technical analysis on DXY. Um, I, I, I do think that um, we shouldn't disregard the number of people out there who are active dollar traders in this market <clears throat> and how they might look at the recent ramp that we've had. And uh, uh, I, I know that there are some people out there anyway, what magnitude and what obviously is a very large market, uh, who have decided to take some chips off the table and perhaps are looking to trade it the other way. So, um, poo-poo technical analysis, but let's not poo-poo the people who might use it to trade in large volumes. That's fair enough there. So Jim, real quick before we move on to a broader topic, I'm curious uh, how you're feeling about how the market has responded to the GD print so far. I know earlier futures were down quite a bit. After the print, we saw the S&P 500 futures shoot up to about break even and then right back down. So what are your what are your thoughts here on how the market's reacting to that print? Well, it'll be interesting to watch the follow through after we get open here, but for the moment pre-market it looks like a bit of a yawner. You know, it looks like it was close enough to uh to cause people to um, you know, maybe <clears throat> maybe get up and get another cup of coffee, but in, in my space the response is uh, is a big yawn. Fair enough. Fair enough. And uh, early as it is, never too bad to get some more coffee and let out a nice yawn. So speaking of yawns and coffee, let's talk about the treasury market a little bit. The $23.7 trillion treasuries market, ordinarily the world's deepest and most liquid fixed income market, is in fact facing thinning liquidity per Bloomberg. Morgan Stanley recently said that the treasury securities issued by the government will be purchased by someone. But the more relevant question for investors at large is not who will buy the securities, but at what price. Pedro, I'd love your thoughts on that. Absolutely. So that's one of the many, when I mentioned financial stability risks, that's one of the kind of top line ones, right? We've had these, these repeated liquidity episodes in the treasury market. And a lot of the fixes that people had talked about, ranging from SLR reform to central clearing and other things, are being very slow to be implemented. And so I think there is a high risk that at some point, as you know, as we have these repeated uh, rushes into safety, as, as markets remain as volatile as they are, there is a potential for you know for something to, to break in the treasury market, and that would leave the Fed in the uncomfortable position that the BOE found itself in of having to 
kind of intervene in a market while at the same time tightening monetary policy and potentially sending contradictory signals to the market. Any other thoughts for the panel on that? So uh, one measure tracked by Bloomberg is U.S. government liquidity index, which measures pricing errors across the curve. And that's come off its uh, highs uh, that were seen during the U.K. gilt sell off in late September. Um, But still conditions there remain relatively illiquid. Uh, A lot, I think, comes down, depends on what sort of buyback program the Treasury Department decides to implement um, based on Janet Yellen's comments. And whether it's just trying to swap duration for duration, you know, liquid on the runs versus illiquid off the runs, it sounds more like what the what they're trying to engineer and coordinate with the Fed. And Joseph, correct me if I'm wrong, is is that they're going the they're going to be issuing more short term uh, bills, um, Treasury bills, um, to to sort of meet um, um, uh, overnight liquidity needs by say money market funds and others. And, and use those proceeds to re- sort of redeem uh, illiquid off-the-run treasuries that are priced at quite a bit of uh, gap discount. So in a way, we may see another form of operation twist um, where, where uh, maturities are sort of realigned in, in, in the process of the, of the Treasury Department trying to restore some liquidity. Yeah, so as, as Ben mentioned, there's been whispers of a treasury buyback program that will help boost liquidity. I think there's a couple ways this can be implemented. You could increase the size of your on the runs and use proceeds to buy off the runs, or a much better way to implement this is as Ben noted, you issue more treasury bills because there's an abundance of cash in the front end and use the proceeds of that to buy off the runs. And that there's significant scope to do that um, based on what I see based on treasuries self-imposed guidelines of bills being 15 to 20% of their total debt, they could do easily do a trillion dollars worth of that if they want to do it in size and not saying that they're going to do it. And so there's that emergency tool there uh, that they could deploy to put stability in the treasury market on short notice if they wanted to. This is something the treasury could do itself. It doesn't require Congress and it doesn't require um, the Fed, although the Fed would be working with them. So kind of the last question that I'm going to open to the panel regarding the illiquid treasury market. Bank of America recently said rising illiquidity could bleed over into other financial markets, stating, quote, declining liquidity and resiliency of the treasury market poses one of the greatest threats to global financial stability, potentially worse than the housing bubble of 2004 to 2007. Is this an unmitigable risk or, since we're talking about it, something we can act upon per Yellen and Powell's, <clears throat> and most importantly, Joseph's comments? Let's start with Martin here. Yeah, that, that, that I mean, everyone's looking for that event. And, and, and you know, I, I, I just don't see it. Ha- I just don't see it being as big of a risk as what, what people are making it out to be. Um, you know, it, it, either it's this or, or I mean, maybe that's just the closest thing that someone can can get to. Um, I, I I really do see the the U.S. dollar continuing to run unabated as being the greater risk, especially in uh, in Europe, for example, and what's transpiring in Europe, and they're getting a little bit of a reprieve um, in regards to uh, energy prices and, and and natural gas. But you know, if there's going to be anything. Um, that could potentially cause um, that to be, you know, a, a serious headwind would be would be Europe and, and the U.S. dollar. But 
with with the treasury market i i just don't see that um but you know i'm not as uh, as in depth in regards to uh look monitoring the situation as as many of my peers here bob what are your thoughts on the treasury market i mean i i think i, I would defer to people who are uh who are closer to the inner workings in terms of the the day-to-day pricing and the and the liquidity dynamics um where you know it it, it sounds like uh, taking from their expertise it sounds like the market's a bit less liquid than it was um but you know we're not we're not running into significant uh concerns say the way we did when um in you know in 2020 or some points in the in the financial crisis dynamic i think that's that's really um really the question is do we see any signs that look like that where there really is you know a loss of price of effective price discovery not just sort of bumping around or wider bid ask spreads because there's been high higher volatility it's really you know real serious illiquidity i think we're gonna have to get to that point before um before there's real concerns and you know the i I think a lot of people are looking at the uk situation and trying to find the next uh uk you know ldi dynamic and um you know I, I've I've sort of searched high and high and wide to try and see if there is a highly levered long end U.S. bond owner. I, I don't see those folks around uh, that could be put into a position of forced selling, um, partially because the way the the typical investors in bonds are, you know, often hold to maturity, often low volatility low leverage, low risk. And so you, you're, you're seeing folks who are taking price losses, but if they're not levered, I'm having a hard time seeing where we're going to see a big expansion of financial risk associated with a shift in prices. And and same way stocks can go down 25% and no one really, you know, it's not great for everybody, but it's fine. We're just, you know, is it possible we could just experience a bond market that goes down 25% and it's kind of the same outcome? I'd be interested in other people's thoughts. Where where do they see the probable cracks opening up as a function of the of the bonds? Because I'm 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 looking for it. I'm trying to find. I think your first clue is going to be in securitized lending, which is what I mentioned earlier. Um, We're already starting to see cracks there in terms of wider spreads. Um, so far, it's it's just cracks. I mean, there isn't any sort of fundamental indication of a breakdown and so forth. And it's more sort of idiosyncratic. But likely, I think you're going to see problems surface on the private lending side first, where a lot of wealth uh, has, has gone into private credit um, that's being used to facilitate leverage buyout financing. And there's just not as much of an appetite on the part of the banks to, to keep participating in that uh, Twitter aside. But um, I would say that that you, to answer your question, Bob, I think you know the first cracks, uh, first stresses are going to pressure up and securitize lending, and then at that point, it's just an assessment of 
how much does the health of the non-banking sector spill over into the health of the banking sector? And it seems like, and again, Joseph, correct me if I'm wrong, it seems like the Fed is much more confident in the health of the banking sector today, such that any sort of um, detonations in the non-banking side won't likely spill over into the banking side. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I think what, so people are often fighting the last war. The, this, that, the last war is in the banking system. And since then, the regulations have really made a big change to the safety and soundness of the banking system. An easy way to see that is during March 2020, when you had wide ranges of asset markets and uh, market participants basically in distress, the banking sector was fine. So, so I agree with Ben uh, that, that the Fed definitely sees the banking system as safe, much safer, and, and I agree with them. Um, with respect to the treasury market, you know, I was writing about fragility in the treasury market and the potential of an accident like the repo market in January. And, you know, it happened, but not in the treasury market. It happened in the gilt market. And I think when that happens, you it enters into the public dialogue. And so the authorities are aware of this possibility. And so that makes accidents in the treasury market less likely, simply because there are notice and now they're thinking about things like buybacks that basically duct tape to, to fix the problem. So th when I think about where things could break next, I think as, as Bob mentioned, there, there's a lot of, the US financial system is relatively sound, but yields are, uh, bond markets are global markets. Yields are all interconnected. When you have rising treasury yields, it, push, it pulls up the yields of everyone else. So what could happen is not something in the US, let's say, um, and becomes for becomes a fourth seller. It could happen somewhere in the eurozone, somewhere in, in emerging markets, somewhere in, in Japan. It, it's I, I don't really understand their financial systems as well. Um, but my thought is that if you have such a core asset, have significant price decreases, someone somewhere is going to be very stressed. And you know maybe that is beginning in uh, some corners, as as Benjamin noted. So before we get to closing statements and let people start prepping for their market open, I want to ask you, Ryan, as a retail trader, somebody who really likes to watch what's directly in front of them, what's your thoughts on the markets currently from that retail? Standing in the corner. Um, so it looks like what retail is really fueled by is that there's been a no news is good news kind of rally for the past week or so. We haven't really gotten any much direct market data that has been affecting what happens in the markets directly. Even with GDP prints, preliminary prints have often gone ignored by the markets. You see, like, with preliminary print one and two for Q1 as well as Q2, the GDP print were terrible, but yet markets rallied. I posted a quick chart on my feed as well, paralleling this, whereas the actual print, which is the third print, which is the final print, has been one that's really followed through. But even then, impacts haven't been so direct. So I think Retail's really been hit more of into back into gamble mode with earnings. They love the data, but that's really what's been moving retail from what I'm watching directly there is they're just looking at this earnings cycle, looking for plays that can give them the biggest implied volatility moves and uh, taking bets on options on either to the upside or downside. And the sentiment has really been quite bearish from retail. Everyone's expecting this massive drop to 320 to 300, where I'm not directly seeing just as of yet, unless we get further massive rate hikes beyond a terminal rate of 5%. But I mean, retail will retail is really went from being overly bullish in the past two years and then shifting 
very late into the game into bearish and they're overly bearish now it used to be when you would post something that's bearish you get so much uh disgruntled replies whereas now if you post something bullish you get a ton of disgruntled replies so i think that from that standpoint retail has gone quite bearish and they're really following the facts of big headline numbers so it's like if gdp is good all right we're all going to rush into calls if pce is bad we're all going to rush into puts so they're really moving based off of headlines more than looking deeper into a lot of these things Good deal. Thank you for that feedback, Ryan. Love having you here to get that retail perspective, as always. So now we're going to move on to final comments. Anybody feel free to chime in. We'll also be having you all plug anything you're working on here at the end as well. So if you've got anything coming out that you're writing, uh, any kind of analysis on the GDP print, Please feel free to plug it. Feel free to plug your sub stacks, your newsletters, anything you want. So final thoughts. We'll just kind of move down the line here, starting with you, Martin. Any closing thoughts on the GDP print macro perspective and anything you're working on? Yeah, sure. Um, so it doesn't look like it's going to be that much of, of an impact here um, at the open, but it certainly does highlight the, the fact that all of us are watching very closely as to um, the, the Fed and and how it's going to to drive markets here. Um, I, I do uh, I think that actually it's quite surprising. Um, I think many people are looking. I mean, we're so small. We're only two percent of global GDP. But you know, look at the Bank of Canada. We led with 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 the hikes. And now we're I think we could be leading with, you know, we did that 50 point uh, print uh, yesterday. And so, um, I, I mean, if you're looking for something outside the box, maybe look north <laughs> and uh, maybe there's something there. Um, I'm a lot more of a contrarian in nature. So I'm, I'm looking at, at what we're seeing out there and the underlying boots in the ground and looking at look at the housing market, for example, where I've spent some time on, especially uh, here in Canada, um, we are uh, seeing some some impacts there, and some and we're going to see some material impacts. And so, inflation, in my opinion, is is well under control. And does it dip back down to um, you know a two percent? And probably not. But can we get real rates again? And absolutely. And there's going to be money to be made. And so, you know, I have to look at those sectors. Um, I highlight uh, every month I do a, a newsletter. Uh, I'll post it on Twitter. You guys, it's free. You can sign up and talk about some of our trades and some of our positioning. Uh, we've been uh, repatriating uh, U.S. dollars more recently. We sold our gold more recently. Uh, we've been buying utilities, for example. And so, you know, these factors that uh, that on the monetary side are are certainly very very important and we're factoring in our asset allocations and and those are going to be available on our on our monthly newsletter beautiful thank you martin everybody be sure to check that out for sure next joseph do you have any final thoughts anything you got coming out man no no it's been a great discussion thanks so much for inviting me nick and unusual wells and Guys, make sure to follow everyone here. These guys are some of the best minds on FinTwit, so definitely follow them. Absolutely. Thanks, as always, for being here, Joseph. Absolutely one of my favorites, and that's never going to change, man. Thanks for coming. Bob, anything else to add here before we wrap up and send people into market open? Anything you're working on? I mean, I, I uh, well, first of all, I just want to thank everybody uh, for uh, – for uh, letting me on here for my uh, my first Twitter Spaces, hopefully it was uh, it was useful to folks. Um, you know, if you want to keep up with 
what I'm doing. Um, I'm regularly on Twitter writing all sorts of stuff uh, at Bobby Unlimited. Um, and then uh, sort of my, my J job is, uh, is running the HFND ETF. Uh, so check that out and see uh, see if it's something that uh, you folks would be interested in. Uh, thank thank you so much for for having me. Hey, thanks for coming, man. It's just an honor of ours, of course, to have you here, and also an honor that we were your first public space like this. So thanks yeah, for coming, Bob. I I, I, uh, I hope to uh, join you again sometime in the future. Absolutely, your input was really great here today, man. Thank you. Pedro, any closing thoughts on GDP, macro environment, anything you're working on? Sure thing. So thanks again for having me. And uh, I would just highlight the notion that, again, we've been trying to catch this Fed pivot for a long time, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's it's not quite here yet. And if we get an even higher terminal rate than people are pricing in now, if inflation proves stubborn, because that is the one thing the Fed is focused on. Um, as far as things I'm working on, I just urge everybody to uh, check out, follow, and listen to my podcast, which is called Fed Speak, and is available on Spotify, Apple, and and more. Good deal. Thank you so much for coming, Pedro. Everybody, be sure to check that out. As we keep saying, and I'm never going to stop saying it. These guys are absolutely brilliant. Learn a lot from them always. Benjamin, any closing thoughts here? Anything you're working on before we send people into market open? It's just um, we got FOMC coming up November second. And um, it's still the blackout period. So, um, but I think we, we, it, based on where terminal Fed funds is being priced, not much changed with the GDP report. It did soften a little bit, but it still looks like 50 in November and likely, fi- or sorry, 75 in November and 50 in December. Good deal. Thank you so much for coming, Benjamin, and everyone. And speaking of FOMC, we will be having another unusual whale space on Wednesday, November 3rd to go over the FOMC meetings and minutes. Now, everybody here, be sure to follow all of the panelists that we've had today. They are fonts of knowledge that you cannot afford to miss. They're always posting really great newsletters, really great videos, really great content explaining the macro environment, explaining how markets are reacting, etc. As I said, we will be back here on Twitter Spaces on Wednesday for the FOMC Minutes. For those of you who came in late and feel like you missed something, you didn't miss anything, this will be edited, cleaned up, and uploaded as an Unusual Whales pod on Apple Pod and Spotify as well as YouTube. Looking into Market Open today, play what's in front of you folks. Stay safe always. Thank you all of our panelists for coming today and all of you for listening. We will see you here next week for FOMC Minutes. Take care, everybody, and good luck out there.